Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. Welcome back to you all, or maybe welcome back to me. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. I was away last week hard at work on a very special product project I hope to be able to tell you about in just a couple of moments, but I'm a little out of practice. I, I got to get a, a sip of water here before we continue. Just one moment. Oh, much better. You can get so much water in when you just use a straw that is not disintegrating before you. So this was actually illegal. Uh, my this is I mean, I always drink like this, but this was like illegal until uh, Friday when these uh, federal court uh, came down the line and said that you can absolutely use a non-disintegrating straw. I believe that's uh, technically what they're called there. But uh, the federal court made a rare good decision about the government's plastics ban. Now, this is the latest rebuke of the government's environmental policies. We'll talk about that in a little bit of time with Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And a bit later on in the show, we will talk about the perils of corporate welfare and how the government's uh, bazillion dollar, that's like the technical number, the bazillion dollar electric vehicle battery corporate welfare plans it has are not even going towards Canadian jobs, believe it or not. So I, I'd, I'd say with this government, we can probably believe it, but that's where we are there. This is a bit of an interesting story. So uh, Glenn McGregor in the National Post did a data analysis of Trudeau's schedule. So he like for the last eight years went through all of the itineraries that Justin Trudeau posts. It's difficult work. I know that because True North's own Cosman Georgia did this a, a couple of years back to look at how many days Justin Trudeau took that were logged as personal. So on his itinerary, it'll show, oh, you know, we've got a meeting with the, you know, chairman of the World Economic Forum. We've got uh, a check presentation to the president of Ukraine. We've got all of these things. And then when he's not doing anything, it will say personal. And sometimes it's personal because he's surfing on the beach in Tofino. Other times it's because he's surfing on the beach of Tofino. Sometimes his days are personal because he is, uh, believe it or not, surfing on the beach in, in Tofino. But I'm sorry, I'm banging my straws now. That's the, the problem with prop comedy. But the thing about it is that Justin Trudeau has taken 24% of his time in office based on 2015 to the present, excluding elections, as personal. 24%. Now, this amounts to 22 months of personal days in the span of eight years. That is nearly two full years of time off. Now, this is for Canadians quite difficult to grasp because most Canadians will have a very difficult time getting the time off from work. Most Canadians will also find that they have to work second jobs on the weekend, say. So Canadians are not getting as much time off as Justin Trudeau. Now, it's easy to criticize him. It is easy for conservatives, and I see a lot of it uh, jumping up and down saying, oh, he's some dilettante. He's not actually interested in being prime minister. He just wants to jet off and go on vacation and all of that. And you know what? Fair enough. But here's the counterpoint to that. And I, I'm going to do the rare defense of Justin Trudeau that you don't often get here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Don't tune out just yet. Do we want him working 100% of the time? Like, look at all that Justin Trudeau has done in the 76% of time that he's been on duty. 
for the last eight years. Do we really want that increase to 100%? Because I am no mathematician. I, I am not great at the numbers. I'm good with politics. I'm good with ideas. I'm wonderful with geography. If you want to like give me a foreign flag and say, where is this from? I'll be like, no, 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 that's that's Monaco. That's that stuff's easy. But math a little bit. But but by my rudimentary calculations, if Justin Trudeau were to work full time, like maybe not even one, let's just say 100% because I can do that. I already did that math in my head. If he were to work 100% of the time, that would be like 33, wait, Sean's checking my math here. You say it's a 50% increase. No, it wouldn't be a 50% increase. If, if he were to work uh, 66 divided by, okay, Sean's confusing me with the numbers here. No, 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 because he only works 76% uh, of the time now. So if he were to do 100, that would be a 33% increase, not a 50% increase. Okay. My math is apparently better than Sean's. Sean like got me, Sean's giving me like nine numbers in our show chat right now. And like none of them are the accurate ones. So anyway, yeah. So that would be a one third increase. So do you want Justin Trudeau to do one third more than he has done right now? Like think of what the national debt would be if we were to add a third to what the national debt is right now. So I'll, I'll give Justin Trudeau a bit of credit in saying, uh, you know, look, if you want to spend more time on Tofino, that's better for Canadian taxpayers. I'm going to say, like, I believe you've earned more time off. You've earned more vacation. If you want to just do what, like, unionized workers do when they're retiring and, like, take all their unused vacation and just take, like, one nine-month paid holiday, I think it would be cheaper for Canada even still than what he would do in that nine months of labor. So uh, that is my attempt. At, Sean's now like editing the numbers he did previously to mask the fact that he got them wrong. You know, you can't edit. I've already read them on air, Sean. All right. This is why we are not a mathematics program here on the Andrew Lawton Show. In fact, I would actually be qualified to be liberal finance minister with uh, my mathematics skills. Sean certainly would be uh, qualified to be a liberal finance minister right now. But uh, nevertheless, it's good to have you tuned in to the program here. I, I All that math, I've worked up uh, the need to have a bit more water here. Oh, you got that lovely slurp into my high-end microphone just for comedic effect there. But uh, nevertheless, I want to talk about this little thing that took place this morning. So Pierre Polyev was doing a, a scrum with reporters back in Ottawa. And he mentioned something which I wouldn't have even paid attention to because I've heard him talk about this in the past. It's not really a new idea. And he said it in French, so I, I won't make you listen to it. But uh, that wasn't like an insult to the, well, maybe it was. But the thing is, Polyev made a comment about the liberals being socialist. And like this is, there's that old thing about how when a dog bites a man, that's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news. Trudeau being a socialist is not news. Pierre Polyev calling Trudeau a socialist, not really news. I wouldn't have really paid much attention to it. But there was a reporter from the Toronto Star who did chime in and uh, made a comment uh, about this. Alex uh, Ballingall said, Pierre Polyev just said the Trudeau government is socialist. And then he followed it up with a fair enough comment on this. The, I've never heard any liberal in this government talk about the appeal of overthrowing capitalism. Well, I bet they probably have, but here's some reading about what socialism is. And then he links to a, a piece that was published by a, a professor at, at Stanford University. Now, I would say that that piece was a little bit more oriented towards communism. I, I think we see in a lot of countries that are very markedly socialist, but still have some level of capitalist enterprise in them. Now, I could go on and on and on, and I'll try not to do too much of this, 
with discussions about, say, how the liberal government is behaving in a more socialist way. I could talk about Christian Freeland's embrace of stakeholder capitalism, which fundamentally undermines what capitalism is and what free markets are. I could talk about the expansion of the state. I could talk about the expansion of social welfare. I could talk about the universalization of pharmacare and dental care that we get from people on the left, including Trudeau government. I could make a detailed point-by-point -point case for why the Trudeau government is socialist in nature. Or I could just share this clip with you. Mr. Speaker, so I was, I was sitting. Um, I'm, a, I'm a liberal and a proud socialist, Mr. Speaker. But this reminds me of a certain quote from Prime Minister Harper, who talked about the fight against climate change as a socialist plot. That's what the Conservative Party, and here it is. You have it again, Mr. Speaker. They do not believe that climate change is an issue. Sorry, I, I, I'm a proud socialist. So Pierre Polyev might have been more accurate if he had said a proud socialist government. That's like the real pride month, socialism pride for the liberals. So that is uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo, who I bet has probably talked about overthrowing capitalism if I looked hard enough, especially his time before office, getting up in the House of Commons and saying in response to a complaint by the conservatives that the liberals were socialist well gosh gosh darn it i am a proud socialist that is stephen gilbo's approach now uh, stephen gilbo is having a very very bad couple of weeks stephen gilbo has had a miserable time the federal government keeps uh, dismissing uh, sorry the court system keeps uh, dismissing his environmental policy the most recent of which we'll be talking about in a, a few moments with chris sims which is the plastics ban but the whole point is, Pierre Polyev makes what is a, a factual comment that the Liberal government is socialist. We have a Toronto Star journalist uh, trying to, you know, de debunk it in some way. Now, I just responded to Alex, who I actually like and I, I think is quite capable, with a link to that clip. And then he, he retweeted it. And apparently the Conservatives have been circulating that clip in uh, force when, when asked about this as well. And then uh, Rachel Gilmore, uh, the, the TikTok influencer uh, who used to work for my old company, Global News, had said that. Uh, Pierre Polyev, uh, so we're just like saying stuff these days, eh? Well, yes. Who is saying this stuff? Stephen Gilbo. Take a look again, just for posterity. Mr. Speaker, so I was, I was sitting. Um, I'm, a, I'm a liberal and a proud socialist, Mr. Speaker. But this reminds me of a certain quote from Prime Minister Harper, who talked about the fight against climate change as a socialist plot. That's what the Conservative Party, and here it is, you have it again, Mr. Speaker. They do not believe that climate change is an issue. See, socialist plot to him is like a compliment. If you say, oh, this is a socialist plot, he'll be like, well, yes, we need to pass it twice as quickly now. So the media is just absolutely deranged about Pierre Polyev. Like they're, they're like this with every conservative leader. It's not particularly a new phenomenon, but we're going to see it ramp up more and more. Now, uh, the one thing is the media has just been wrong about this. We had when Pierre Polyev was elected, all of these columns from people in the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail saying things like, I won't, I'm just paraphrasing, but these were all things that we heard of, oh, he's too radical to win. No Canadian's going to like him. The conservatives are going to have their worst showing yet. Remember, Jean Charest was the guy that was going to be able to deliver a conservative victory, not this, uh, you know, Pierre uh, Poily Every kind of guy, whoever that is.
And uh, this was the uh, point here. There was we've seen polling consistently over the last few weeks that not only show more conservative support than liberal support, but polling that shows massive, massive conservative margins, larger projections for conservatives in a next election than even Stephen Harper had the year he won his majority, 2011. Uh, and then it, now the media has had to like try to find a way to fit this into its narrative. And it's really interesting. Like, how do you spin really good conservative poll numbers into this message that, oh, well, the conservatives don't have a shot? Uh, this is a great example in the Montreal Gazette. Are the conservatives at risk of winning too many seats? A row for Pierre Polyev could spell trouble for the Tories if the result replicates the unmanageable voter blocks they faced in the past. You look at how uh, the liberal polls are weakening. You read about how, oh, yes, the conservatives are doing well in the polls. Uh, the liberals have been uh, trounced in the past, including in 2011. And then they're saying, oh, well, but, you know, for the conservatives, like if, if they just win too many, it's going to be an unmanageable coalition. Well, it's not an unmanageable coalition if you win a majority, which is what the Conservatives did. The most stable Conservative government we had in Stephen Harper's three terms was 2011 to 2015, when he had a broad, decisive mandate from Canadian voters. Now, that doesn't mean that everything he did in that time was perfect, but when you win a majority, you have a lot of latitude on what it is you can do. And, you know, I criticize all the time decisions that are made by courts. Now, in the last couple of weeks, there have been some good ones on the liberal environmental policy. But nevertheless, I will point out here that for the liberals, they are in the midst of right now a decline that is going to look a lot like what they went through in 2011 when they're reduced to, I mean, in that case, it was third party status. Now, I, I don't know if that's going to happen quite, but it is going to be really, really bad news. And now all the journalists have to like get rid of the no one's going to vote for conservatives uh, narrative and come up with another one. So now the risk is, well, we don't want them to be too powerful. So uh, this is how things are shifting here. I mentioned earlier, in the program that this is no longer an act of defiance. This was illegal a few days ago. Now, I think it's fine. Now, I have to do some more Christmas shopping because I had like ordered my wife, uh, you know, a thousand plastic straws because I thought that was like the real romantic uh, Christmas present of the Trudopian era. But uh, now I have to go back to the drawing board. It's not as badass now that I don't have to like smuggle them in from some uh, liberated country because in Canada, you can have your plastic straws now. The federal court has dismissed the government's plastics ban as unconstitutional. Part of it is because the government had such a broad and overreaching definition of what plastic is, but we also saw it as being tremendously unconstitutional, encroaching on provincial jurisdiction, but basically out outstretching its own powers and the bounds of the law and the constitution. Now, what does this mean, especially when you contextualize it with the Supreme Court's defense of, uh, or sorry, a rejection of the Impact Assessment Act, the No More Pipelines Act, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, joining me now is Chris Sims, our regular Monday guest here on The Andrew Lawton Show, the Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And I, I actually saw Chris on the weekend in Red Deer at the Canada Strong and Free Network Regional Conference, which was always a good time. Uh, not only because we saw Chris, but that makes uh, any good time <laughs> better. Uh, Chris, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming back on today. 
Likewise, Andrew, uh, Franco and I were talking this morning. What is Andrew going to get his wife now for Christmas that he doesn't yeah. have these plastic plastic straws to give? You could give her like jerry cans full of gasoline, but that's a little bit too expensive and a little bit uh, too volatile. Yeah. This Home is heating really... oil. I can, we can import some home heating oil oh, from Atlantic Canada. Tax-free if you get it from there. Hey, baby, it's tax-free. Um, so this is important from a taxpayer's perspective because it's a wrap on the nose to intrusive bigger government. And what was interesting in the ruling is some of the language used by the judge was, I'm paraphrasing here, this is problematic for federalism, meaning stay in your lane, Ottawa. You're reaching too far here. And while a lot of us, when we think of single-use plastics, probably think of exactly your plastic straws there that you're going to have to sell on eBay now, and the single-use plastic shopping bags, which are now almost gone, which causes all of us to walk out of the grocery store carrying all of our jars of food, it's also certain things like contact lenses. Because it tried to declare all plastic manufactured items as being toxic and therefore worthy of regulation by the federal government. Interestingly, in this case, the judge actually cited things like contact lenses. And she basically said, to paraphrase, your definition of this is too broad. So we're striking it down. Now, interestingly, of course, Gibo is saying the fight's not over. I still want to climb into your house and regulate what you have in there. So they're probably going to appeal it. But you're right, on the, heel, on the heels of overturning Bill C-69, at least ruling against it, and now this plastics ban being called unconstitutional and a threat to federalism, this is really good news for people who want government to be small enough to drown in the bathtub, as Grover Norquist famously said. Yeah, and I, I would also point out that it's incredibly anti-business because oh, yeah. you have, I mean, not only an entire plastic sector, which I think the government is trying to vilify, like as, you know, the like the big tobacco industry or whatever, but you also have, I think, a, a really big problem here in that government companies have always already had to respond to these regulations so a lot of the big grocery chains have already done exactly what you've alluded to there they phased these out i was in in red deer i went to a, a very freedom loving restaurant uh when i was there uh, this was the day after the decision came and i got like one of those soggy dissolving disintegrating paper straws and i i know they didn't want to give it to me but they've probably had to buy you know ten thousand of these things already and the, the worst thing is for me that the government may get really what it wanted in the first place because they forced business to do this. And now, even though the law has been found to be unconstitutional, a lot of businesses have already embraced these new products. So Canadians are still losing out. They are. Uh, but the beauty of capitalism, of course, and free market choice is that if enough of us complain about having paper straws disintegrating into our drinks, that businesses will respond and then buy the straws or buy the spoons or the cups that we want to use when we purchase their items. Now, to your point on costs, uh, I was reading some data coming from the restaurant industry. And you're right. The amount of money that they have had to shell out now for you know, new clamshells, for example, uh, what they're going to do with stir sticks, all that sort of stuff, that all costs money up front. Yeah. And these are all private businesses. And so now you're right, because the government stuck its nose into something so simple as to the containers we use to eat and drink, they're now going to have to uh, alter their course. Also, this was starting us down a slippery slope. 
because in my mom's groups on Facebook chats and stuff, a lot of us were asking, well, what's next? Are my Ziploc bags, you know, my sandwich bags that my put my kids sandwich in for school? Are they next? And all of the data I kept reading from the government was not yet, yet. But they were definitely establishing the precedent here from Gibo's perspective that, yes, we do have the authority to go in there and regulate what you use out of your pantry. And so this is a really nice thing to see as a correction to say, no, federal government, stay in your lane. This is unconstitutional. Further, this also kind of gave um, a spirit or a good wind, if you will, to the idea of taxing everything, including bags. And mm -hmm. so in Vancouver, we saw they went so far as to try to impose a cup ban, <laughs> so a disposable cup ban, so that we would all eventually have to use a communal pool of sippy cups. The entire city. I'm not you, I can just imagine going into Starbucks. Yeah, I'll take my, my ice latte right here, please. And just like, you know, really, really squeeze the hands together so you don't lose it. I forgot right? I forgot my reusable cup at home. Or into into some grody cup that's been sitting in the bottom of a backpack on some student's knapsack on the SkyTrain for years. Like, it's just gross. But they, they repealed that part. They've kept their bag tax, though. And now the city of Edmonton has a bag tax, no matter what it's made out of. So a paper bag in a drive through at McDonald's, you're dinged 15 cents every single time. And they're going to jack up that price in the new year. And that might not sound like a lot, but what it does is it gives the government, it gives them free reign to intrude into your personal life in this way and tax you even for that. Even a fully recycled paper bag that's going to disintegrate anyway, they're still going to tax you for that. So this is nice to see as a correction and a movement, hopefully, towards more smaller and responsible government. Well, and it wasn't it in Calgary where there was a, a store that did the thing that you're all supposed to do. They come up with this yes. reusable bag that they will charge people for. And even that was deemed too plastic by the federal government. And, you know, that's a good, good reminder. That's a good freedom of information request to find out just how many bureaucrats it took to decide whether or not that it was a co-op grocery store, if I'm correct in remembering whether or not. Yeah, so we're not even talking about these like renegade libertarians there that are like trying to skirt the law. These are like the do good lefties that were tr <laughs> do, trying to do everything right and probably would have even without the regulation. Exactly. Those people that like to sing in like circles and hold hands, them, they were the ones that were told, no, 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 your plastic bag is too plastic. Also, when they start looking into alternative plastics, we have to keep in mind that there's pluses and minuses and wins and losses to all of these uh, subjects and all of these materials. So if you're talking about vegetable-based biodegradable plastics, I've read some studies that show, hey, if you wanna amp that up and move away from petroleum plastic and go to vegetable plastic, guess what? We need to grow that. Where? On land. You're going to take up arable land in order to create these plastics and you're gonna take away from food production. I've heard lots of warnings about that. This is all to say that whenever the- <laughs> Sorry, I was getting thirsty. Was like, I'm impressed. You look like Homer when he was trying to smoke all the cigarettes at once. <laughs> 
right? So people need to keep this in mind when government comes up with these big ideas, when the bureaucrats are sitting around trying to outdo each other at Environment Canada in Ottawa or Gatineau, that they all have consequences. They could either cost families too much money, they could nuke businesses that are already on their knees after the COVID lockdowns, or they could even have unintended knock-on effect of, hey, we're taking up arable land to grow plastic bags instead of food. Yeah, I think you're, well, you're bang on there. And I think you're right to capture that bigger picture of a plastics ban is just a vast expansion in the role of the state. Uh, Because really, this is central planning the most minute things. It is what you put in your pantry cupboard. And, And incidentally, it's also causing more waste. I mean, one of the number one complaints that I get from people about these is the one that's so familiar, which is that we all just buy these things every time we go to the grocery store because we can't hold everything and get out to our cars. So we buy them and then we forget them at home and then we have to buy another one the next time we go there. And not only is it more expensive because these are, you know, like a buck, two bucks a piece, uh, but also now you're producing more and more of these things. When I think most families and certainly my own have like a giant bag or cupboard full of plastic bags that we reuse for things like garbage and, and, you know, household, whatever. Walking your dog. (laughs) Yeah. Now what do you do if you want, you know, a garbage bag to line your, uh, you know, bathroom garbage can, what are you doing? You're going to the store and buying plastic garbage container liners. Like this is just so absurd. Exactly. There's no, there's no proof that this is fully reducing our use of such things. Like where are these things being made up? So for example, a lot of these so-called plastic or canvas or whatever bags you see, I check because I want to know, almost all of them that I've seen are made overseas, namely China. And I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, I don't think China has the same environmental regulations as Canada does. So it also had to get here. I mean, even if it did, it had to be shipped here. (laughs) Look, it came here on a barge. And again, you're right, we're all forgetting them at home. And so you have to really look at the knock on effect. And even if you make your own, which I do, I sewed a whole bunch of these bags, which I also forget in my pantry before I go grocery shopping, that also takes up energy and materials and resources. So again, this is all, you know, it reminds me going back to Dr. Thomas Sowell, who is still with us, thank goodness, 93 years old, and the gentleman just put out a book. (laughs) So I, I wish. So he said, whenever somebody comes up with a brilliant idea, we should ask them three questions. Compared to what? At what cost? What hard evidence do you have? It looks like they failed on all three counts. And interestingly, now the court is saying, folks, stay in your lane. So uh, here's the thing that I, I have to ask before we move on from this, because obviously the government doesn't really seem to be accepting that it lost. Uh, This is true with the Impact Assessment Act ruling. It's true with this. The government is still trying to plow ahead. So are you kind of thinking that this is going to end up being a political decision that Canadians will make where they have to elect a government that just says, no, we don't want this level of intrusion? Yeah, I think so. Just from my experience on the Hill and my experience as a journalist forever, I see this as one of those nuisance factors. So 15 cents is not the same amount as say a photo radar ticket would have been uh, mm-hmm. back in in Ontario back in the day under PCs and Mike Harris. But keep in mind the amount of intrusive nuisance factor vote that was. 
So Mike Harris for, won for many reasons when he became Premier of Ontario. But one of the key reasons why he won is because he said, I'll ban photo radar. I'll get rid of it. And so I think this is one of those personal, my nose is out of joint, you're in my face. I'm really tapped out because, you know, you've caused inflation, you've jacked up my carbon taxes, you've increased my increased my payroll taxes, I can barely afford groceries. And now I have to juggle all my jars of jam getting out to my car. So I think that is eventually going to be one of those issues. It's going to become a political factor. Yeah, I think jam juggling is going into the uh, next election. All right, Chris, since you brought it up, I have to ask you, who wore it better? <laughs> oh, my gosh. See, I was right. I remembered that one. I like yours. It's more relevant. And uh, Okay. Well, my, these cough. are more deadly, according to Stephen Gilbo. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give up plastic straws and take up smoking. That'll be my contribution there. Uh, Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure. Great seeing you on the weekend. And we will see you next Monday. You betcha. All right. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Simpsons references are always the evergreen, uh, the always the evergreen one. I don't even get them most of the time, but everyone around me does. So as someone on True North's internal discussion understood that reference. So uh, in any case, we are going to move on from that. But uh, well, let's just do one more victory lap here for the road. There we go. Uh, apparently, I need a refill. Anyway, uh, this is a, a good day for taxpayers in some ways for the reasons we were just discussing, but for others, not so much. Now, remember the billions and billions and billions of dollars that was being spent on the electric vehicle battery plant. This was the big, uh, giant, uh, ambitious plan to set up a, a Volkswagen EV battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. And then Stellantis, which is the company that now owns Chrysler, said, oh, hang on, we want a piece of this corporate welfare also, and got into it. Well, uh, now we find out that this money, which was defended by the government as being for Canadian jobs, is not even going towards Canadian jobs. It's being largely used to bring in temporary foreign workers that Canadians are now paying for. So Canadians are on net losing money entirely on this. Here was a, a clip of Conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, condemning this revelation. Now we learn that the $15 billion grant to the Stellantis plant will fund mostly Jobs for non-Canadians, not immigrants. We love jobs for immigrants. Jobs for people who are not Canadian citizens and will not be Canadian citizens. They will come here, get a taxpayer-funded paycheck, and take it back to their country. I love South Korea. Wonderful country. But they don't fund jobs for Canadians, and we shouldn't fund jobs for their workers. Our money should fund our paychecks. Bring it home. That's why common sense conservatives are demanding a, a full inquiry into how many of these taxpayer-funded jobs are going to temporary foreign workers. We want a commitment that none of the money should go to temporary foreign workers, should only come to Canadians. This is a $15 billion grant to one company. $15 billion works out to $1,000 for every single Canadian family. You got 15 million families in Canada. You got $15 billion for this one company. Every family in Canada will give $1,000 to this plant. And now we know that the majority of the jobs won't even go to Canadians. 
That's specifically referring to Stellantis in Windsor. But uh, I think the general sense here, when we talk about Volkswagen, Stellantis, all of this, is that in general, corporate welfare is not a winning proposition. Canadian taxpayers, uh, Canadian workers really don't benefit from this. It becomes a race to the bottom. It's the big multinational companies that are the ones cashing the checks here. But in this case, it really is adding insult to injury when it's not even Canadian jobs that are ostensibly being created here. Aaron Woodrick is the domestic policy guru over at the McDonald Laurier Institute and joins us now. Aaron, always good to talk to you. I mean, this is like really a slap in the face, but I'm almost glad because it shows more ostentatiously how bad corporate welfare is. Yeah, look, for, for those who are tuning in who don't know my history on this, I mean, I've been a longtime critic of corporate welfare in all sectors, in all places, at all times. I'm a big fan of free enterprise and business and, and the right to earn a living and make money if you can, but you should not be getting tax dollars if your business cannot support itself. And that's especially true of these large multinationals. Andrew, in this case in particular, what I, I had a bit of a chuckle about is that, you know, these are the same people, whenever I make my usual objections, they say, well, you know, that's just the, that's just the price we have to pay. We have to pay to play. If we want to get this plant, we just have to outlay these billions of dollars. That's just the way it is. But if you say, oh, some of that outlay has to go to, you know, say the South Koreans want to bring in some experts from Seoul because they're the only ones who can do this. Oh, no, no, we can't have that. That's not a price we're willing to pay. We're willing to throw billions of dollars at something that makes no economic sense. But God forbid some of those workers come from outside of Canada. So I, I, I thought that was a little bit rich, but it does expose the absurdity of the whole thing. Um, and frankly, it's just another um, reason why governments should not get their fingers into these business, right? Like if a business brings in foreign workers and they're paying it on their dime, it's kind of none of our business. But once our money is engaged, once taxpayer money is invaded, you've got the government going in there saying, well, you have to put the plant here and you have to have this many employees and you have to produce this. I mean, the government is basically running the company. And then you start to wonder, I mean, for people who know, well, government runs itself. Imagine how good a job they're going to do running a business like Stellantis. Yeah, and, and I think Pierre Polyev made a point there, which is a valid one. I mean, South Korea, I don't know much about their domestic politics, but I suspect they're not uh, giving companies large bailouts to bring in Canadian workers, nor should they. So I don't really see the argument here on, on how Canada should be doing this. I mean, TFWs are already a bit contentious. I mean, the argument is that, well, they only exist because there are jobs that Canadians just can't do or, or more specifically won't do. In this particular case, when companies are given money that governments are turning around and defending by saying it's going to create Canadian jobs and it's creating South Korean jobs. It just doesn't really square there. No, look, and when it comes to importing workers to do work in this country, they generally fall into one of two buckets, right? You have people who are very, very rare skills that are highly skilled that we just don't have enough of those mm -hmm. people on the high end. And then also what we call on the low skill end. So you've got work that Canadians don't want to do. It doesn't pay very well. It's very hard. So those are the two sort of high end and low end. Now on the high end, you know, if you're in a, you know, you're looking for nuclear physicists, right? There's just not that many. There's not that mm -hmm. much you can do, but that's not very many jobs. On the low end, the challenge we have is... People, employers say, well, we can't find any workers, even if we raise our wages. You know, in some cases, that's true. But my response there is, well, what, is, what kind of entitlements is the government offering 
um, that will keep people out of these jobs. I mean, the reality is if people, if we live in a country where the social safety net is so comfortable that you can actually choose to work or not, and I'm saying, not saying all people do this. Of course, some people can't work and have legitimate reasons not to work, but especially in certain regions of this country, it's well established that there are people that pr are prepared to work less or work part of the year because the entitlement system is so generous. So I, my argument is if you actually make that entitlement system a little bit less generous, create some better incentives for people to work, you'll have more people going into those jobs. You'll have less need for temporary foreign workers. And this problem largely goes away. Yeah. And, and I hate to keep you know, beating people over the head with the obvious point here, but there is a difference between a, co a company that says, look, we have this need. We believe it can be best filled or only filled by foreign workers in this market and a company that does that well, the government is paying for it. Well, exactly. We're paying for the privilege. And if a, if a business wants to uh, to do that sort of thing, boy, they should be running as far away as they can from any any handout because obviously this objection and, and politicians are right. I mean, at least in this instance, you have governments now saying, well, we want to make sure the taxpayer money is well spent on a subsidy in a different way. But nonetheless, I mean, you can see how any politician worth their salt is going to see the alarm ringing here saying this is not this is not going to go over well with anybody if this money is actually leaving the country. Outside of this, I wanted to get you on the show anyway today. You had a great piece in the Globe and Mail. The key to saving Canada's economy is tax reform. Now, I think it's safe to say in the last eight years, no one in government has come up with a key to saving Canada's economy. So I think uh, as a Canadian, I say thank you for uh, putting this up there. Uh, but when you say tax reform, I mean, we often hear governments and political parties talk about, oh, we can, you know, add this little tax credit here, this reduction. Uh, in some cases, even more radical reforms like what Stephen Harper did in reducing the GST. But when you talk about tax reform, you're talking about something a bit more radical here. Explain. Yeah, I, I'd say too, the title's a little bit generous. I argue that tax reform's a key plank in, in you know, boosting our economy. It's not the only one. That alone's not going to do it. I would mm -hmm. say, Andrew, generally the, you know, the debate over taxes is about higher or lower. And I think that's an important debate. I come down firmly on the lower side of that. But that's a separate debate than a complex system. We have an absurdly complicated tax system. Most people who have to do their taxes know this. Don't even try doing it without a professional help or without one of those uh, softwares that you purchase. It's it's just, it's way too complicated. There's a cost to that. It distorts the system. It's confusing. It makes it hard for businesses to comply. Um, I think it's fair to say we should have a debate about how much money does the government need? And then we got to look at the fairest, simplest, most neutral way to raise that money. And that's part of the thing that often gets left out when we're debating higher or lower taxes is which taxes are the ones that are the best to get this money, which ones are going to you know, create the, the, the least distortions and do the least damage to our economy. One of the biggest problems with taxes, in my view, well, paying them, but one of the other biggest problems, uh, and this is true in Canada, it's especially true in the United States, is that we have such a path dependency in our approach to taxes. If you were to say, mm -hmm. we're going to gather around a group of people and we're going to create a new tax system from scratch that, you know, starting from zero, no assumptions previously, I don't think anyone would land on what we have. I don't think anyone would come up with a tax code that is just this long in the US, even longer, because it doesn't make sense and because it's so complex and convoluted. Yet this is what we have. And, and as a mm -hmm. result, changes seem to be very limited to tweaks and, and like you say, higher or lower. So would you, in the ideal world, if you were at that table, would you be changing something fundamental in how much you rely on consumption, how much you rely on corporate, how much you rely on sales and income? Like what would your approach be if you were to really blow this up and start from scratch? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. It's a bit like barnacles on the hull of a ship, right? They just keep clinging on and eventually you sort of you drag the ship down with you. There's an inertia element to that, right? Their politicians have limited political capital. They don't want to waste all their time sort of undoing or fixing the things their predecessors done. They want to get on with their own. So they just end up layering it on top of things. Look, I think there's a good debate to be had about uh, the role of consumption taxes. Um, you know, people don't like them because they can see them. So they're kind of economically efficient, um, but they are very, very politically damaging. We saw that with the GST in this country. We've seen it with things like carbon taxes. The other problem with consumption taxes is rarely are they applied consistently. See, like you'll 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 bring in something like a GST or a carbon tax, and then you'll get all these little carve outs, right? Well, we won't tax poor people, and we won't tax pregnant mothers, and we won't tax this product. And so you kind of undermine the purpose of the consumption tax. Well, and, and just to, inter just to interject there for a moment, and then you get these really convoluted debates about what a food product is. Uh, you know, things like, well, this is a grocery product, but this is a snack product. So it's not even consistent yeah. within a category. Yeah. So I would say, generally speaking, whether you're, you know, if you're going to do consumption taxes, just do it blanket. Don't have all these carve outs because otherwise you're just undermining the additional value of that. I mean, the other debate is over the, you know, taxing things like land and housing. You know, some people are pushing for things like a home equity tax. You can imagine how that, that's probably about as, uh, you know, popular as, uh, as a snowfall in July. Uh, but I, I think another thing we need to really wrap our heads around, and this is, this is another political challenge, is this idea of when we talk about taxing businesses, people love taxing big corporations, right? People forget that corporations are a legal fiction. There is no thing called a corporation paying tax in reality. Someone else is paying that tax. It's the employees of the company. It's the shareholders of the company. It's the customers of the company. So somebody else somewhere is paying that tax. So, you know, it's very popular politically to say we should tax, you know, corporate tax, raise it. Um, that doesn't hurt anybody. Well, it actually does. Somebody else is paying that tax. And in a lot of cases, it's better to just tax people um, on their personal income tax than it is through, you know, if you're if a very wealthy, say you want to get a very wealthy person to pay more tax, don't tax the business they own more, just tax, tax above a certain threshold, their income higher. That's the better way to go about that. Coming back to that whole, um, figure out how much you want to raise and then figure out the least sort of distorting way to raise it. Well, and to put that into the context of our corporate welfare discussion, I mean, I, I imagine if a government could say to a company, we're going to give you $0 in corporate welfare, but we're going to charge you 0% corporate tax because we know that you're going to employ all these people who are going to pay corporate tax and your executives are going to pay income tax or income tax rather. Uh, and, and you know, that there's, I don't know how much money that works out to because it depends on the company, but there's sure. a very real chance that that would give them more than yeah. corporate welfare does. And it's an incentive that doesn't cost taxpayers money. Right. Well, look, and, and incentives matter, right? I've often gone to these debates about people say, well, you support tax cuts. Isn't that the same as corporate welfare, right? I mean, you're giving the company money. And my response is pretty straightforward, right? There's a big difference between if you run a business and you earn money, that's your money, and you get to keep more of it, right? That's or, that's money you had to go out and earn in the marketplace. That's different than the government coming along and saying, we're just going to sprinkle this money on you. You just get this money, whether you sell stuff or not. And, and I only think to that's some a, companies, the, it, whereas well, the exactly. thing is, is across the board. That's where the fairness thing comes in. But I mean, just, um, uh, you know, conceptually, they're very different. For you to believe that a tax cut is the same as corporate welfare requires you to believe it's actually the government's money in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And they're just letting you keep some of it. So I find that, um, you know, we can debate. I, I'm not a big fan of boutique tax cuts either. I think you should treat all businesses equally. You shouldn't sort of single different ones out. But letting people keep more of their own money is a very different thing than giving them a bunch of money that was never theirs in the first place. Well, and, and this is where we get to, I, I think, the biggest issue here. And I, I 
realize that you're in a, a very good position on this because you work in, in policy, but the politics and the policy of, of taxes and economics, I think, are oftentimes in direct conflict. And this yeah. is, I mean, we can talk about the liberal government's financial mismanagement, but I think the conservatives are, are particularly bad historically at wanting to embrace these boutique tax cuts because it's very good politics. If you can say to the a single mom, you know, we're going to do this for you, or if you can say to a family with kids in sports, we're going to give you this money for your kids to do sports. But then what you do, you've done is you've added more and more complexity, more carve outs and less universality to the tax system. Absolutely. And you saw this argument during the conservative years under Stephen Harper. They added a lot of boutiques credits. And who's going to argue with that? Who's going to argue with the idea that, you know, giving families a tax credit to put their kids in sports is a bad thing? The problem is uh, what I found ironic was that people at the time argued that, well, you know, if we just cut uh, if we just cut income taxes, the liberals would come along and reverse that. Whereas if we put these little things in the tax code for the reasons we talked about earlier, they'll stay there. What ended up happening, ironically, is Justin Trudeau comes into office. One of the first and best things he did, in my view, was he actually he got rid of those credits and he actually just cut taxes so it's been a long time since uh since early 2016 when he did those great tax measures andrew but i do remember back in the distant history that there was actually a couple of yeah. good tax policies under justin trudeau but then your your fiscal honeymoon ended when he still continued <laughs> to like ramp up spending for the next eight years yeah it ended pretty fast tax cut it yeah yeah uh well i hope that uh, the aaron woodrick vision finds a home in uh, someone who's in a position to put it there where it needs to be on the books aaron woodrick from the mcdonald laurier institute great piece in the globe and mail and thanks as always for coming on today thanks a lot andrew all right. That does it for us for today. I will say uh, it's going to be a regular week for the show, and I'm very excited about something we have for you on Thursday, which touches on the idea of economic rights for Canadians. We'll uh, have a bit more information about that as the week progresses. But I am going to be in Burnaby, British Columbia on Wednesday for uh, an event hosted by the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. I'll be speaking alongside Rav Aurora and Amy Hamm and uh, the great folks at the JC. CCF. Now I, I do sit on the board, but I, I don't think that I, I didn't make them invite me as a speaker. They did that on their own. So that wasn't like my, you know, big defiant act as a board member. So uh, that'll be good. And I know a lot of you are in uh, British Columbia. So if you want to come out, they have tickets available at jccf.ca. Hope to see you there. And, and as always do come and say hello. Every time I say that, I mean it because I had people in Red Deer come and say hello and I appreciated it. So uh, that does it for me for today. We will be back in just 23 hours and 15 minutes here on Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.